you see a lot of things come through that don't necessarily always feel right. And so my number one tip for everybody that I talk to, every title agent that I work with is trust your gut. Title professionals have a complicated job, but they manage to make it look relatively easy. When something isn't quite right and there's a question of how to proceed, title agents turn to their underwriters for guidance. And while people often joke that title work is boring, if you spend some time talking with an underwriting counsel, you'll hear some fascinating stories mixing human drama and property rights. It takes the help of underwriters to untangle these complicated title problems and issue marketable title policies. In this episode, I talk with Lindsay Hall-Harrison, underwriting counsel for Stewart Title. She shares some of her favorite tales from the underwriting desk and why she loves what she does. I'm Amanda Farrell, and this is Title Talks. Now that we got the tech issues out of the way. Right, stupid tech issues. Okay. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. It's just, I'm, it's been just another week of crazy going on. You know, it's like everybody's just so busy. So, um, okay. I have researched, I have a notepad full of answers to questions. And so I am ready to go when you, when you, however you want to run this, if you want to do sure. it. Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and uh, hop right in. So okay. before I, I get started with the questions, I just always ask people, you know, to introduce themselves, tell me a little bit about what you do in the title industry and who you are. Okay. My name is Lindsay Hall Harrison. I am underwriting counsel with Stewart Title Guarantee Company based in Florida. And my physical location is in the city of Maitland, where I am on the city council, uh, which is my side hustle slash night job. And um, I have been underwriting counsel for about five years. Uh, overall, I was with a previous um, underwriter for about four and a half years, and uh, before that, I had a variety of other jobs, <laughs> all related to real estate. Okay, and yeah, I was curious too to learn a little bit more about how you got into the title industry. Um, I know that that's always a, a big topic for a lot of title agents. You know, the fact that it's a hidden industry, recruiting is difficult, so. Maybe can you tell me a little bit about how you fell into it and then also what a day in the life of a underwriting counsel is like? So I got into what I'm doing now by way of, well, I graduated from law school in 2009. And when I came out into that market, there were not a lot of job opportunities available. Everything was pretty much foreclosures and whatever you could kind of get your hands on because law firms were not hiring. I mean, 2009, we were in the middle of the recession and it was, it was a scary time to graduate from law school with no job prospects. And unless you really knew somebody or you had a job lined up for you, it was, um, it was kill or be killed. <laughs> so it was kind of a scary time. I happened to luck into a role at um, one of the plaintiff's foreclosure firms that had an office here in Orlando area and they were hiring and I had no experience, but they were happy to take me on. And I started out doing plaintiff's foreclosure first filings where I was the attorney assigned to review title search documents and to sign off on the complaints for the foreclosures that were being filed all over the state of Florida in all 67 counties. 
and I would handle the first filing responses to uh, motions from the homeowners or the defendants who were being foreclosed. And then I eventually moved into the litigation department where I was then traveling all over the state of Florida, uh, handling the in-person court cases for these foreclosures. So I would be in Miami on Monday, Fort Myers on Tuesday, Wednesday, I would be in Jacksonville, Thursday, I might be up in the Panhandle, and then Friday, I'd maybe be back in the office handling a um, handling a, you know, a local court call hearing or something like that, and then trying to do some billing before starting all over again the following week. And I did that for two years. And it was fascinating really florida back in those period of time was it was the wild west for foreclosures so we were kind of making up the laws we went along the judges were hearing things for the first time and trying to decide what to do with them so maybe a ruling that i was getting in miami was completely different than a ruling that a colleague of mine was getting up in duval county up in jacksonville area and we'd have to go back to the office and reconcile those with our clients because they would be getting results from all over the state with completely different opposing results. So, and then of course the robo signing issue came along and all of our cases got shut down. And so then we were going into court managing the frustrations of the judges who couldn't move their cases forward and things were getting dismissed left, right, and center. So it was a crazy, crazy time, but I think that it was a really formative experience to learn first of all, about being part of the court system and, and how justice or you know the legal system really proceeds, but also to see just how complicated real estate law is and how many aspects there really are to the, the work that we do. And so I did that as long as I could until I burned myself out on travel. And then a friend of mine, he and I decided to start out on our own and we started a law firm and we were working directly inside of a title agent's office, helping that agent with all of the legal stuff that they could not handle. And we quickly picked up a book of business and some loyal customers uh, in the form of realtors and other title agents. And we made a decent start for ourselves. And um, our firm grew big enough that we hired associates and we moved out of the title agent's office and we uh, moved into Winter Park. And we had our own law firm with our own title company and we were doing really, really well and we were very successful. And then my partner and I came to the point where we wanted different things. And so I sold him the title company and I continued practicing for a while longer. I was handling you know, litigation cases. I was working with realtors on escrow disputes, really fascinating things. One client of mine, her roof was accidentally unroofed by a roofing company. They had meant to do the roof across the street from her house, but they accidentally took her roof off. And so then we had to sue the roofing company and they argued that she should pay them for the new roof because she was getting a new roof out of the deal. And so that was a really crazy case to work on. One of the last ones I remember before I, I shut the firm down because I then went in-house with a large national mortgage lender uh, as their associate general counsel for just over a year, um, which was fascinating. I loved being on the mortgage side of things. It was really interesting to see what the mortgage industry is really like um, and to learn more about how things are done internally and to get that perspective, especially having represented lenders to then be inside of a lender and to see really what was going on and how the sausage is made. 
Um, but ultimately I left because I was offered a job working in title insurance and I knew that that's eventually where I wanted to end up. I wanted to be underwriting counsel when I grew up. And so I got the opportunity and I jumped at it and I have never regretted the move and I have been thrilled ever since. So what is it about the underwriting side that you were so attracted to that, that made you really want to focus in on that versus the lender and the, the litigation that you were doing before? When I first met underwriters, I instantly realized that they are people who have a massive amount of very specialized, very specific knowledge but they also have to be able to command a huge number of other subjects and be able to figure out how those subjects like bankruptcy and family law and probate and trusts and all of the other areas of law that intersect with real estate and have to be able to manage all of those areas really well and become specialists. And I was so blown away by the expertise that was required to be able to do that job. And I also really was excited by the idea of problem solving because that's really what an underwriter is, as a problem solver. And so when I heard about that as a job and thought, wow, this is something that I could do, um, that was when I became really excited about the idea and knew that that's where I wanted to eventually end up. I love problem solving and underwriting is nothing but puzzles all day long. So it's a really cool opportunity to flex my brain and to try and come up with solutions to problems that maybe I've never seen before, or maybe somebody else has never seen before. And so we have to be collaborative as well. And it's, it's phenomenally exciting. Yeah, that does sound pretty exciting. And I know for a lot of people, when you try to explain title insurance to the average consumer, uh, a lot of people, their eyes sort of gloss over and it can seem kind of boring at first, but it sounds like you're really in like the mix of things where it gets very exciting, very interesting, and you're always on your toes. And so you chronicle much of the work that you do under the hashtag Tales from the Underwriting Desk on LinkedIn. Do you have a favorite story from that series that you would like to share? I have so many stories that don't even make it onto my LinkedIn page. And that's because sometimes they're so complicated, like you're saying, the eyes glossing over, that there's no way for me to even properly explain it in the very brief amount of space that LinkedIn actually gives you to create a post. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, five or six paragraphs would go by so quickly when trying to explain some of these title problems. But I definitely have to say that some of the most interesting ones I've come across are the really obscure areas of law where I never thought I would have to deal with, like the Slayer statute. Um, that's a law in Florida that says you cannot profit and benefit from the death of a family member. So if you kill someone, you do not get to inherit their property. And I have come across this twice now in my career, and I find it to be completely gory from the obvious perspective that someone died at the hands of another person, but from the title perspective of having to disinherit somebody on paper in order to be able to pass the property along to a relative who did not kill the person who owned the property. Um, it's, it gets really super nerdy title work involved. So I really do enjoy those kinds of stories, even if they probably seem to an outsider to be sort of horrific and gory. I like the really complicated things. So sometimes I deal with probate issues, which involve multiple relatives. 
A lot of them are fighting with each other. A lot of that can't even make it into a story again, because it would just take up too much time to explain all of the different people who are involved. But it does make for a really interesting story. If somebody wants to sit down and have a cocktail, and I would be happy to tell them the you know, hour that it takes to explain all of this before their eyes gloss over. So hopefully my stories are entertaining enough. Yeah, no, I've definitely read a few that were pretty interesting. The simplest of mistakes often lead to some of the biggest title problems. Can you talk a little bit about the error of the transposed digits foreclosure? That was the title of one of your LinkedIn stories. Yeah, that one is so I have a soft spot in my heart for foreclosures, having obviously done foreclosure law and spent a lot of time dealing with crazy foreclosure cases. You know, one of the first things I remember as a baby lawyer sitting in my office was getting a letter in a certified mail, big envelope that came to me and it showed up on my desk. And it was from a couple somewhere in the Miami area. And it was a nicely written letter that said, you know, dear so-and-so, I think you've accidentally foreclosed the wrong house because we paid off our mortgage in 2003 or whatever it was. It was a long time before this letter had arrived. And we don't currently have a mortgage on our house, but someone showed up from the sheriff's department today and said that they are going to file a writ of possession against us and that we need to be out of our house. So I think you've wrongly foreclosed our house. <laughs> so I always remember that story because the, the letter was written in such a nice way. And here I am as a young lawyer going, oh, oh my God, these people could sue us. Like, this is this is really bad. We've taken that, we've tried to foreclose their house. And so foreclosures, as much as they seem like they are streamlined and simple, they can go really wrong really quickly. And one of the places where they can go the most wrong is when they are filed. And so the title search process upfront has to be done correctly. And if you don't do that process correctly and you don't make sure that all of the information matches, then you have a problem. The, the mortgage industry calls it garbage in, garbage out. So if you don't get the correct information up front, then you are going to get a problem on the back end. And this is exactly what happened with this story that I was telling in my Tales from the Underwriting Desk. So the property had a physical address which had a unit number of 301. And that was on the deed and that was on the mortgage. And so unit number 301 was, was the number on the unit. However, the legal description had the unit number of 310. Now, why I have no idea, that doesn't make any sense to me, but that apparently was the situation. So unit 310 is the legal description. And of course, as I said before, you have to follow the legal description, not the physical address. That's the only way to convey title properly in Florida. So the legal description on the deed said 310, the legal description on the mortgage said 310. And where it gets kind of sticky is, is that the mortgage itself has two places where you can actually put the legal description. One is embedded in the mortgage on the second or the third page. There's actually a small paragraph that's open. You can write in the legal description, but most of the time, usually the mortgage just says see exhibit A. And so an exhibit is attached to the back of the mortgage, which has the legal description on it. In this case, the legal description paragraph inside the mortgage was completed and it said unit 310. There also, however, was an exhibit A attached to the back of the mortgage, which said 301. So the problem kind of started there, but knowing from my experience that the 
legal description inside of the mortgage would control over the one that was attached as an exhibit A, I thought, okay, well, this isn't the biggest problem until you see that the assignment of mortgage said unit 301. So two years after the mortgage was executed, they used the legal description off of the exhibit A, which was wrong, which said 301. So then the assignment of mortgage says 301. And then when the Liz pendants for the foreclosure case was filed, obviously whoever had done the examination of title didn't look thoroughly enough because the legal description on the Liz pendants said unit 301. And of course the legal description on the property is 310. So from the very outset of the foreclosure, they were foreclosing the wrong property. So they went ahead with the entire process. They got a final judgment on unit 301. Unit 301 went to sale. Unit 301 got a certificate of title. And unit 301 was purchased by an unsuspecting third party purchaser out of the foreclosure sale. So very disappointing for that person who then is now trying to sell the property and our title agent was handling the uh, the sale of the property to another unsuspecting third party and the title search came back revealing that in fact unit 301 and 310 were not the same and the person who thought they owned unit 301 do not because their foreclosure of unit 301 was improper in the first place and unit 310 which the lender had thought they were foreclosing never actually happened wow so how <laughs> how was that resolved was there any resolution there at all or not as of yet i never get to see the resolution on some of these things the fun thing about my job is, is that it it really is diagnose the problem and send the patient off to get care but i never really seem to find out how these things are going to get resolved i know that my emails back and forth with the agent were left with shock and awe that her client did not own the property he thought he was selling I made my recommendations on what the lender was going to need to do in order to fix the problem, but I suspect that whatever process is going to be undertaken to fix this is going to take several months and will probably be very expensive and may involve a lawsuit by this unsuspecting third party against the lender. Um, and if the lender is smart, then they will refund the buyer back his money and re-foreclose the property and get the correct foreclosure but I don't expect to see that fix itself for quite a while. Wow, that's crazy. It is, it is crazy. But these are the fun things that I love because they're just so wacky and it starts with a basic fundamental human error and, and really simple, simple human errors really kind of can throw the entire thing for a whole huge loop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, you know, based on that, based on all of these tales that you have from the underwriting desk, can you summarize maybe the top five tips that you would give to agents based on the most common mistakes that you've seen? Yes, I have. I have my number one tip for title agents and having been a title agent myself, you know, you see a lot of things come through that don't necessarily always feel right. And so my number one tip for everybody that I talk to every title agent that I work with is trust your gut. And that is because there is so much in our industry that is susceptible to influence that we have to, we have to trust our gut. The title agent is really the most important person in the entire transaction. 
they are the ones who receive all the information from the lender. They're the ones who filter the information from the realtor and the buyer and the seller. And they have to put it all together in a way that creates a transaction which is insurable and can close. And the title agent has to be able to filter through all of that information and they have to be able to see what they're looking at and for it to make sense. But for them to also realize when something doesn't quite look right. And so when you're dealing with parties who may not be representing the full truth because it's not in their best interest to to be transparent, the agent really has to be able to know when something doesn't smell right. And, you know, that comes up a lot with powers of attorney, guardianships, particularly in Florida, where there is such a high population of seniors and they may have relatives from out of state who are trying to help them to sell their homes or to help them to move into a different kind of facility. And, you know, that that intuition from an agent is essential to being able to make sure that the deal is protected and that all the parties to the transaction are really dealing fairly because ultimately your gut is what is going to tell you whether or not something is going wrong. So trust your gut is my number one. And I talk about it so much because I think it's so very important. Um, another one is to double check someone else's work. And I say that because mortgage uh, mortgage companies have a lot of people who work in their, in their processing. A lot of them are highly experienced and very sophisticated, but a lot of the time data entry is done by younger or less experienced professionals who may not necessarily know what they're doing or may, you know, accidentally type something in wrong. You know, once again, garbage in, garbage out. It's nobody's fault, but we all have to double check each other's work. And so uh, it's important for the agent, the title agent to be the last line of defense to make sure that things are done correctly. So double check everybody else's work. It doesn't make you paranoid. It just makes you good at your job. Um, number three, don't be afraid to phone a friend. Um, I love to get phone calls from title agents. And if they call me and they say, this is a really stupid question, but I always try to assure them that no question is stupid. And if you're asking me, it's better than asking and it's better to ask than to go forward and do something yourself and then question it after the fact. So I always encourage people to phone a friend. If you have a question, reach out to your friendly neighborhood underwriter, ask them if they have an opinion on it and get collaboration and involvement from other people because this is not a job that anybody should have to do themselves and it's not a job anybody you know, needs to do themselves because there is so much experience and knowledge in our industry that we all should be able to lean on each other to be able to get an answer, especially since there are so many things that can come up that may look like something we've seen before, but we know that one little tiny fact or one little piece of information can drastically change an answer. Number four is a mantra that everybody should live by in this industry, trust but verify. I think that one goes back to trusting your gut, but also when you get information that comes to you from a new source, make sure that you can rely on that source. Make sure that that information is verifiable. Don't just trust somebody else who says, oh no, it will be fine. If you think that you should follow up on it, you should follow up on it. So trust, but verify. And then finally, I think that this is definitely advice for every title agent, especially right now, breathe. This too shall pass. There is so much that we take on and in terms of responsibility and frustration and 
as the gatekeepers of the transaction, title agents are taking it from all sides. They're taking it from the realtor who wanted to close yesterday and the buyer and seller who are frustrated over the documents that they have to go and find and produce. And the mortgage company who doesn't understand why their numbers don't work with the numbers that are given. And there are so many different parties to the transaction who all lay their frustration at the feet of the title agent. And the title agent is expected to smile and be friendly and be helpful and to do it quickly and efficiently and at as low a cost as possible for everybody involved. And that is a huge amount of responsibility. So I tell my agents this, breathe, this too shall pass. We will get over this. We will move on together. And by next week, we'll be laughing about it. So we just have to keep an, an open heart and an open mind and, and be willing to just accept that we have a really, really tough job, but we all do it really well. And if we didn't love it, we wouldn't do it. Yeah, I think that last tip is very important. Um, I recognize how busy people in the title industry are and the people that are still able to, you know, rise above all of that. Uh, It's pretty impressive, actually. Um, So obviously, you spend a lot of time untangling the messiest issues, and it requires a lot of human intervention. Do you see any opportunities where automation and machine learning can help you accomplish your tasks more efficiently? You know, that's a really interesting question, because I know that a lot of people are talking about how blockchain is going to come in and sweep into the title insurance industry and you know it's been a conversation topic for many years and you go to any conference and there's always a session on blockchain and we talk about it about you know how is blockchain going to solve all of our problems and i think it's interesting because the one thing that i've realized about this industry is is that the more and more technology that we we layer onto what we do, the more human the role really is um, that we have to perform. You know, we've, we've got all of these amazing suites of software that we can offer to our agents in terms of integration with different products so that they can click one button and it will populate their commitments and it will lay out all of the escrow requirements and it will record the documents and all of these amazing things that do make the process faster for the title agent. But at the end of the day, I don't know that any of those things are necessarily going to change my job because ultimately what I am required to do is I'm required to look at documents and figure out if they make sense in my mind with how the chain of title has been in the past what the current issue is in front of me and how I resolve it. You know, the one thing that distinguishes title insurance from casualty insurance is that casualty insurance makes risk determinations based on algorithms, based on, you know, tables of data. And there are very smart people out there whose entire job is to figure out how long I'm going to live and whether or not, you know, how much it's going to cost to keep me alive past X number of years, right? You know, there's, there's data to support future insurance. Title insurance doesn't work that way. We are insuring backwards. And so any risk determination that we do in making an insurability call has to be done based on human determination and and human factors. So is that lawsuit going to pose a risk to my insured's policy? 
And that just can't be done by AI. You know, we can run a title search and pull all of the information and know that we have a lot and block property inside of a established subdivision and that there are no judgments or liens against the borrower or the homeowner and that, you know, they are not a credit risk for potential future judgments. And all of that information is really helpful. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if we find a deed from 1957 that deeded the property, you know, from Uncle Joey to his nephew and it was done on a cocktail napkin, you know, that's not something that's going to get captured by an AI program. And so we have to really use the human factor to make those determinations. And I don't know, it's an interesting problem because technology really has been helpful to make the search and exam process faster for our examiners. You know, they can now type in less information and get more back. And it is delivered in a really nicely concise format. But no form of technology is going to overcome documents being misindexed in the record or documents being recorded in the wrong county. That just comes simply from the basic intuition of the individual who's looking at the records. You know, a perfect example of this was I had a judgment, and this is from one of my tales from the underwriting desk. I had a judgment that was that my examiner, she found the judgment and it was in the record, but it hadn't been certified. And one thing that I always do when I'm looking at judgments, even if, especially if they're uncertified, is I always go to the court docket to see if there is any activity on the judgment and if the court case has moved forward since the judgment was recorded. Because in Florida, you can't attach a judgment to real property unless it's been certified. So it has to be recorded first, and then it would have to be certified by a clerk and re-recorded. And that's only when it can become a certified judgment attached to the real property. So I always like to go and make sure because if we have a quiet case and nothing has happened, well, then I'm a lot more willing to let that judgment go unignored than if we have activity that indicates that something is going to happen. How is an AI going to figure that out? It's not. So that requires human intervention. So we go to the docket and we see that several years ago, a fee had been paid to the clerk for certification of the record which tells me that there was supposed to be a certified judgment recorded. And when the examiner called the clerk, sure enough, the fee had been paid, the certified judgment had been prepared, but there had been some sort of a lapse in the clerk's office and they'd forgotten to record the certified judgment. So that judgment was supposed to be certified. Would an AI have picked up on that judgment and dismissed it because they thought, oh, this is, this is uncertified, we can ignore it. But a human would look at the court docket and say, oh, they paid for the certified record. It just never actually got recorded. That again, human intervention was the cause of it. But if we had ignored it and let it go forward, there would have definitely been an opportunity for a claim there because the creditor would have been owed money if they had made their certified judgment known. So I like the idea of technology helping us to do our jobs better, but I think in, in my particular role, there really is no way for an AI to take over what I do without us sacrificing the fundamentals of what we do as title insurance and not casualty insurance. And so if we, if we allow AI to, to take over the fundamental role of risk determination 
and and making those important judgment calls, then we are no longer issuing title insurance. We, we're issuing casualty insurance. And I think that that, that becomes problematic. Yeah, I think there's still definitely a lot of limitations when it comes to what computers can do for people right now. You know, computer vision, um, the algorithms and the information, the data that you're feeding into these machines. It's really important that they have, you know, going back to what you said earlier, garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. If you're layering technology on top of flawed information, which is what's happening a lot in these public records, and you as a human, you're able to intuitively recognize when something's not right here but if ai is basically being built on top of that they're going to be making assumptions and decisions based on bad information and you're obviously going to get bad results right so yeah i i, I definitely think there's a huge limitation right now but it's interesting to see how things are developing and where where the industry is able to use bits of automation bits of ai to use as a tool to to complete their job in a more effective and and quick way um for for agents interested in doing more remote closings you know ron is like a really big topic as well talking about technology how does ron impact title insurance requirements <sighs> well ron is another really interesting thing that we've had to deal with over the last couple of years especially since the timing of ron in Florida um, has been, you know, so interesting. I, I remember going to conferences in 2019, 2018, and people were talking about Ron in the same way they were talking about blockchain. And you would think, okay, you know, Ron is a solution without a problem. And for a while there, it really was. You know, it felt like we were we were hurrying ourselves towards a technology that was unproven. And we were being promised that it was going to solve all of our problems, but we didn't really have the problems yet to solve. And then all of a sudden, boom, the pandemic happens and we are now presented with the problem that our solution has been looking for. So the timing of Ron is both fortuitous and ironic. I am grateful for the fact that we have had the opportunity for the technology to prove itself and it's done so formidably over the last year. But in terms of underwriting requirements, not a solves all problem. And I think that that's one of the frustrations that I encounter and I know my title agents that I work with encounter because when we are dealing with foreign buyers and sellers, which we have so many of here in Florida, they are the people who most need access to Ron and they're the ones who are the least able to use it. So under the, the notary laws in Florida, which were expanded in 2019 to allow for a remote online notarization. And so the law came into effect on January 1st, 2020, which again, perfect and ironic timing that we had a law in place ready to go. The law requires knowledge-based authentication in order for somebody to be able to use a remote online notary platform. So how notarization works according to the laws is that the person either has to be personally known to the notary or they have to be able to produce identification and that's that's the standard law and how it's always been is, is that you either have to the notary has to either know you but can't be related to you or they have to be able to have government id produced to verify your, your identification and when you're handing over a driver's license or a passport in person that's a fairly easy thing to do but when you're doing it remotely 
they have had to create credential analysis um, in built into these software programs to be able to read and review people's documents to be able to confirm their identity. One of the ways of doing that is, is knowledge-based authentication, which is basically what you do when you're applying for a car loan or some other form of credit where these skill testing questions come up and they're based on your credit report. And so you, you answer the question of, you know, did you live on this street or this street or this street? And so you click on the right one or you know did you own a 2005 acura because it all comes from your credit report if you don't have a social security number because you're not a u.s permanent resident or citizen you don't have that availability to do that so the only thing that you can do if you are a foreign national is you have to hope that the notary knows you because then you can pass the other prong of the notary test which is personal knowledge so knowledge-based authentication, credential analysis are both required if the notary doesn't know you. And if the notary does know you well, then you can be a foreign national and have a RON signing done remotely, but that is not the case for most people. So when all of the embassies shut down and individuals were suddenly scrambling to try and do their closings outside of the country, we had to get really creative with how we were going to be able to help our agents continue to do these closings. So, you know, in some situations, we've been able to rely on a witness proof affidavit coming from the realtor who has had a longstanding relationship with the out of country permanent, non-permanent resident uh, because they've sold and bought multiple houses with them over a period of years. And so that person can basically vouch for them as being a, as being a real person, but that, has been in the minority of situations. So once again, we have a solution to a problem, but we still have a problem that hasn't that has been left unaddressed. And we did here in Florida just have an update to our RON laws, which allowed an expansion of the documents that can be used. You know, passports can now be used that don't have to have through um, and been certified by ICE. So we don't have to have like a visa or something attached to them. But it doesn't fully expand out KBA beyond credential analysis, which is still the only way for people to be able to pass three identity tests. You know, foreign passports are not recognized by these systems. So we can't verify a foreign passport. So there is still work to be done and it leaves the underwriting requirements in a complicated place because I don't like to tell an agent, no, you can't do it this way, but we have to follow the law and then the law in Florida is very strict on how we can proceed. Texas and Virginia have much more um, favorable laws, Virginia especially. And so from an underwriting perspective, we have to be willing to make a risk determination as to whether or not we're going to accept a foreign buyer or seller using a Virginia RON platform and, and what are the risk factors of doing that. And, and that's you know up to every individual underwriter to make those calls. But it's been an interesting year to say that all of us were thrown 18 months ago into having to learn everything there is to know about RON. And I would say as much as we're all experts at it now, there's probably things that every one of us would like to see fixed and improved. Yeah, and there's lots of opportunity to, I think, to use other ways of identifying the signer, the principal in the loan signing event. Something that I've learned about having done more research in Ron is 
the digital certificate. I had no idea what that was. At first I thought it was a digital notarial certificate, but no, this is a type of certificate that basically goes from a, goes to a third party and you've gone through this process to ensure that you are who you say you are. So it's like another form of a government issued ID, but it's a, a private third party issuing this certificate that is essentially you only have the digital key to. And so it's another way of proving your identity and not necessarily having to do the KBA process. And I'm sure that there are other options out there too, other things that we just haven't really thought about implementing that could also help with the process of proving someone's identity who isn't a citizen of the United States. Yeah. And it's a really, you know, I think it's in some ways it's a very uniquely Florida problem because we do so much foreign real estate. You know, other states may not have the same challenges that we do in that area because most of the buyers and sellers probably are from somewhere within the United States. But Florida is so heavily invested with foreign buyers and sellers that that we confront this problem on a very regular basis, probably more so than most other states. Lindsay, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything you've shared with me today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks again to Lindsay for sharing her stories with me. If you're on LinkedIn, be sure to add the hashtag Tales from the Underwriting Desk to hear more stories from her. Title Talks is produced by PropLogics and myself. Original music is by Cole Sando. Original graphics are by Jordan Norris. Until next time, happy closings.